You're listening to The Headroom, a podcast for aspiring sound engineers and contemporary acapella. Okay, everyone, welcome back to The Headroom Podcast. My name is Kyle. And my name is Ricky. Yes, so we're so excited to have uh, Eric Scholz as our guest. He is a producer, mixer, mastering engineer, you name it. And he works for himself at Eric Scholz Productions. How's it going, Eric? Great. How are you guys today? Pretty good. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and some of the projects you're currently working on? Sure. Well, I think you said it pretty well. And um, I mostly just work from home, do a lot of mixing and mastering, specifically for acapella groups. Right now, I'm working on a few interesting things. So we are in the middle of the COVID epidemic or pandemic. So there's not a lot of recording going on, but I'm still doing a little bit of mixing and quite a bit of mastering right now. A lot of groups are still finishing up their albums. I'm working on a project that's pretty interesting, trying to inspire more people to record from home. And it's just called the Home Recording Handbook that is on my website. I'm also in the middle of working on an album for this awesome group based in London called Vade. They are doing a full-length album of all original music, and they've had Isaiah Carter from Pitch Lab doing all the arrangement editing on that and a bunch of the percussion. Oh, wow. Um, That album's pretty fun, and I'm really excited for people to start hearing it. Nice. So, Eric, what we want to know is how did you get started with production, and how really eventually did you go about learning production? That was definitely an experimental process because I started really young. Around, I think, age 15, I got a little bit curious and I wanted to figure out how I could start recording my drumming because I was a drummer at that time. And I was like, man, I was so inspired by what Dave Grohl was doing by creating the Foo Fighters and essentially recording the first album or two completely by himself. And I was like, I could I could do something like this. So. I essentially took an old mp3 player and I set it down in the same room as my drum kit and I just used the record function on that mp3 player and I found out really quickly that the signal was just clipping like crazy so I had to put the mp3 player in a different room under a blanket in order to get a signal that wasn't like breaking the input of the device and that was the first thing I started doing and then I was like okay I have a drum track now let's learn some more instruments so I can layer stuff on top of it. So I learned to play guitar and bass guitar and started singing a little bit. Um, And it gradually just like grew into more of a proper recording rig from there. I went from the MP3 player to a really crappy old computer with a copy of Goldwave on it, which is like a single track audio editing software from a long time ago. And in order to in order to actually record anything on it um, or record something over another track, you would have to do it destructively. So I would have one track playing and I would be recording the guitar over the drum track and you couldn't actually mix them after the fact. It was just like using a single track tape machine or something. So it was super primitive starting there. And then eventually I, I got like a six channel PA mixer that I started using and I found uh, this really good deal on like four drum mics from uh, from a yard sale somewhere in Kings Park. And I was like, okay, now I can mic the drum kit with four mics and I can mix it with this mixer. But still, I was recording it stereo onto just like two tracks and I was mixing it before it actually got recorded. 
Uh, and then from there, eventually, I got a better computer, a real audio interface with multiple inputs, and that like that opened up a whole world of things. And eventually, eventually, I found myself actually knowing what I was doing. But those first few years was all just weird experiments, doing things in a super bootleg way, and learning a lot of lessons the hard way. Nice. It sounds like you went through some crazy hurdles, which is which is what everyone does. Yeah, I cannot imagine like tracking the tape. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty nuts. Well, it wasn't actually it wasn't actually tape. It still was digital, but it, it was definitely like tape. Yeah, for sure. So what would you suggest to beginners out there who, you know, are, are also starting out like that? Well, definitely do things on your own time. But fortunately, there are a lot more resources now and you can probably learn quicker. And recording software is a lot less expensive now than it was back at that time. Like, I think Logic cost like a thousand dollars when when I was that age in like 2005, 2006, 2007, like it was expensive. Now Logic is like $200 or something like that. And there are free versions too. Like you can you can just use GarageBand. There are a lot of good options for people to get started on a much faster track than than I did. That's awesome. So uh, that I think I like that you mentioned that like, you know, you slowly got better and better gear. Um, and so we actually want to ask you a little bit and maybe have you go into some details surrounding microphones and, you know, how did your knowledge of microphones progress and, and why do you have the mics that you have today, you know, and for what reasons? That's another another really good way to frame it, too. I should really say that that's a good way to frame my learning process as well, because in the beginning, I, I really had limited resources, so I worked with those as long as possible until I could find the edges of the equipment, try to find the limits of the equipment before I upgraded to something new, just because I didn't have the money to upgrade to something new. I was really young, like I was in high school, um, and that was a great way to learn. I think it's really important to find the limits of the equipment you have before looking to something else for that magic sound that's in your head. Because realistically, that magic sound doesn't actually come from the gear, it comes from what you do with the gear. And then later on, when I had a little bit more money, I started spending more money on a lot of microphones. Like I bought a Manly Reference Cardioid, I had a TLM67, which is actually the mic that I'm talking to you through now, but I also bought a uh, circuit kit from this guy, Max Kirscher in Austria, who builds a replica of the original U67 circuit, along with the tube power supply and all that stuff. And I had modded my TLM67 with that, making it a really expensive microphone. And I learned years later, like recently, that I actually liked the way the stock TLM67 sounded better than that modded version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I used it for so many things and now I realize like you know what actually it sounded better stock and so we're back and it just like <laughs> you do all these things you sometimes might upgrade a little bit too much and just buy things blindly to the point where like you think it's going to be better because people say it's going to be better but really you should be using your ears the whole time and taking your time like really spend time using the gear that you have so you can know whether it has deficiencies or whether it's just like a deficiency in the way you're using it um so yeah i, I think it's important to take your time i i liked a lot of the mics that i had and i didn't appreciate some of the ones that were good 
while I had them. Um, but I, I liked the experience being able to experiment because like owning as many microphones as I have really helped me hone in on the ones that I do like. The DLM67 is great. I like the Slate I've had for a little while. Um, I like the Warm Audio WA87, which is a mic that is at a low price point, but exhibits qualities of really expensive mics, like resistance to wind noise and a little bit better of a sense of reach. And it doesn't resonate on high frequencies, which are all like finer points that are tough to hear before any processing. But it is those things that separate the really expensive mics out from the really inexpensive mics in my experience. Sure. And for a lot of beginners, uh, it it can be intimidating to buy microphones, especially when reading all the different specifications uh, that each microphone offers. What would you suggest for uh, to them in terms of what to look for? Yeah, don't look for the specs. Really, what you want to look for is the way something sounds and something that you know has produced good results in the past. So something like the MXL V67G is a really inexpensive microphone. Depending on the time of year you look on Amazon, it might be anywhere between $50 and $70. But it works, and great records have been made with that MXL microphone. Sure, it has a lot of resonance up high, but for some voices, that's actually a good thing. And um, I recommend just starting really inexpensive and then finding what you like or don't like about it. And if you really think that you can't achieve the result that you want out of it, then consider an upgrade. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. So you've spent a lot of time, you know, experimenting with microphones, experimenting with tracking. So what was your experience with learning post-production? We can go into editing now. What was your experience there? And what, what were some of the challenges you faced when uh, learning how to edit? Sure. Well, honestly, I would say chronologically, I was mixing before I was editing, mostly because I started out working on stuff with instruments in it. I didn't really start editing until pretty far along. I think I was maybe 21 years old or so. Yeah, I was, I was 21 um, when I edited my first set of acapella tracks. And um, at that time, I was already mastering as well. So it's it was a really funny progression because I had done so much audio stuff just with instruments in it. Um, like I was working for local bands in college. But when I started editing, at that point, I had a lot of experience with the other parts of the process. So I knew what I wanted to hear down the line. I was using Melodyne single track and I was just keeping mental notes of exactly where everything sat, like in relation to the grid, while I go from track to track to track to track. And it wasn't until much later on that I learned that that's a horribly, horribly inefficient way to do things, but it ended up sounding okay. Um, and that that album or that EP ended up doing doing all right. Well, um, you know, I, I think back to you know, right now these programs that we use, and I could not imagine having to do that you know, sit down and say, all right, well, I think it was the third bar and a couple beats in. I think that's where we're cutting this note off. Yeah. Or like, or like this one is just a little bit behind the grid and we're going to make sure to remember to do that for all 40 tracks. <laughs> so 
definitely something that we've noticed in your mixes is the drum production. So is our drums and, and vocal percussion, is that something that you put through Melodyne and you use uh, and do in, in what is like the editing portion at all? I definitely do things with the drum track in editing, but I don't put them through Melodyne. If anything, I use Elastic Audio in Pro Tools uh, for any alignment stuff, but sometimes I don't even do that. A lot of the time, I will just aggressively manually cut things up from the spit track combined with samples that uh, often come from the percussionist who recorded it um, and just try and sequence things in a way that, that gives me enough different sounds on different tracks so I can be really flexible with how I treat everything. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, one of the notable uh, mixes that you did with the with your drums is uh, Karate <laughs> for the Sons of Pitches. Uh, by the way, I, I love that mix. It was it was really funny because my friend Snapchatted me this morning. It was eight a.m. and he says, "Have you listened to this?" And it was <laughs> it was Karate. I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I know who mixed this too," <laughs> and I'm talking to him today. <laughs> I love that people are listening to that. Oh, That's it's, great. It's excellent. Yeah. I, I mean, as a metal fan, I approve. I love the blast beats, the vocal growls, the guitar distortion. So, um, but yeah, like what? Uh, I, I I mean, since you're a drummer, like what? What what was it like? Just you know, taking those vocal vocal percussions and turning them into metal beats. Like how much of it was, uh, you know, was close to the the original? A lot of it was just as performed. Honestly, there there was so many there were so many parts like. Um, the symbols in the beginning and in like the, the kind of like filtered parts throughout the bridge, that's all just one spit track thrown into a long sizzly reverb and it just sounded good. So, you know, Hippocratic Oath type thing, do no harm. I didn't really do much to those parts. The rest is just using the same patterns that um, their drummer, Mide, was uh, doing and just augmenting them with samples that I had made previously out of his own uh, drum tracks. So like his kick drum, his toms, all that stuff, just layering those to make every single hit sound as strong as possible. And obviously the metal sound is often a really heavily sampled sound anyway. So I wasn't super concerned with having things sound a little bit too machine gunny or something like that. But I was surprised to see that even with using the same tom sound to to layer underneath the stuff he was performing, it didn't really sound too artificial. Like it seemed to kind of work. It still sounds a little bit vocal to me, and that makes me really happy. And what, what sorts of stuff did you do with the with the vocals with the guitar distortions? Did you just run it through a amp sim or? Yeah, actually, I use Saturn FabFilter Saturn for that one. Yeah, because they have like some amp sim presets, specifically the, I think like the screaming lead preset or whatever, ended up just sounding like super high gain, solid state type of thing. Um, but the thing that makes it work isn't necessarily the plugin that I used. It's the syllables that they sang. They were doing a lot of like, door, 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 which like when you think about it, sounds like an electric guitar before it hits the amp. And I was like, that's brilliant. And it ended up distorting so well and sounding so guitar-y that I was really happy with it. And all I had to really do after that was listen to some metal tracks that I liked and try and mimic some of the EQ balance things. Because honestly, that track does have a bit of a different sonic profile than a lot of acapella tracks that, um, 
that I've really heard. Yeah, speaking of the sonic uh, profile on the track, I mean, I think most of us would say like the song slaps, right? And it has like a thick low end, right? It, you know, it, it hits you in the gut in the low end where where we feel that punch. So how did you maintain some of that punch um, with the drums and like kind of EQing? Um, that's all. Right. Yeah. So there are only two things in that mix that have anything happening under like a hundred hertz so only two things with any sub bass and that would be the lip buzz bass that their bass josh performed which is awesome it sounded awesome before i did anything to it um, and i think it works as an awesome bass um, kind of driving everything and the kick drum that kick drum sample is something that i made from uh a spit track that I recorded back in like 2017 when we did their all originals album. And I actually went over to England, stayed in an Airbnb on this like beautiful farm in the English countryside. And um, I, I got that sample there and it has like a lot of great content down, like way down below 50 Hertz. So there is a lot of like, there's a lot of like, really tubby 40 45 hertz going on in that mix and because there's nothing besides the bass and kick living there it seems to really have some impact still cool so what's it like working with a creative group like the sons of pitches and you know what are some of the challenges you face when working on experimental projects honestly it's a joy i love how many practical effects that the sons of pitches do i mean like i mean that in the same way that you would you would consider practical effects in film right like kind of imitating a special effect but doing it before post-production you know they're they are they're doing filtering effects with their mouths they're kind of telling me exactly what they want the song to sound like before it even gets to me so when i mix it's kind of like okay how can we take this idea that they had and make it really over the top? Or what parts of their performance need just a little extra push to make the whole thing come together and seem like a cohesive piece? So I love that. And I think they do a pretty damn good job of doing that. Um, and then sometimes they, they want me to go a little bit wild and they say uh, that they like kind of pushed it in one direction and they want me to do a little bit extra. So I'm always happy to experiment with stuff like granular synthesis and um, adding rhythms and adding notes and like sweeping EQs to to accentuate different harmonics and stuff like that. I, I really enjoy being able to play around because they do they do want me to a lot of the time go a little bit ham. Awesome. So on the end of not going ham and being super creative uh, i want to ask you like a more i guess boring question about your mixes you know i i love the the tone of all the recordings especially the stuff with the, with sons of pitch that you do um like the tone and the consistent presence that it has uh it never feels harsh never feels um too present in any any frequency it's always just a nice pleasant tone Can you speak to you know how you might work towards that oh thank you very much I think that the best way I can, or the way that I, that I try to do that the most is just reference in as many places as possible. A lot of the time I'll mix something on my monitors in my home studio and then I'll upload it and send it to the client 
And then, you know, naturally I can't stop thinking about the mix or something like that. So later on in the day, I'll like go to box.com and I'll start listening on my AirPods and I'll notice that something is sticking out, you know, at like two, three or four K like that kind of like harsh upper mid range. And I'm like, oh crap, like I need to go back and change it. So before the client even sends me notes, I'll be like, actually, I just had to make a little quick adjustment. So, um, so I made a change, like here's mix one A instead of mix one. And I'm just constantly listening to make sure that things are present, but not in a way that it like hurts your ears. And, you know, I really appreciate appreciate the compliment, but I do sometimes listen to my old stuff and think, okay, maybe maybe that was a little bit harsh here or there. And I try and adjust my process on future projects to make sure I don't do the same thing again. Nice. Well, uh, while we're on the the lighter side of things, let's talk about your another mix of yours, uh, keeping your head up, uh, performed by the BU Troublemakers, uh, which is which is also a great track. And what I loved about that one is how you were able to bring the, all the backing parts to feel up close, ensure that it's not fighting with the lead, and what sorts of uh, EQ tricks did you do to uh, maintain that separation? Yeah, that was a really fun mix, and it actually came together relatively quickly, um, at least for the mix one, because the arrangement was just so good. I believe that arrangement was by Evan Lindsay, who is an alumnus of uh, the BU Troublemakers, and he also recorded that track. Um, so uh, it was in really good hands. Like it, it came to me in a in a great form. Um, so I edited that, and I also just started mixing it in a really straightforward way. I actually started with the backgrounds first. And the thing I noticed right away is that everything had a lot going on in the air frequencies, a lot going on over 10K. In fact, so much that I thought it was too much. So if you look at any of my EQ curves on the backgrounds especially, there is a big bump in the high mids and then there's a huge reduction in the treble frequencies like anything over 10k like is brought way 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 down and um i don't think it's a dark mix still but i felt like i had to tame a lot of that stuff in order to make it all sound immediate and make it sound a bit more realistic so um, I liked having everything take up a little bit more of that presence range those high mids they needed a little bit more and um, then it came down to a little bit more of like volume management. So I compress the lead vocal way more than I compress the backs. The backs don't have very much compression at all because I'd much rather just ride those over time um, and have them pop out where they should and have them tuck in where they should. Whereas the lead vocal, you compress it really heavily and it always sounds immediate, always sounds really intimate because even the like breaths and quiet stuff get amplified by the compressor. Now, the other thing I do is I often take the breaths and clip, clip gain them down so that they're not overbearing because realistically I want the really like quiet tender parts of words to be audible but not necessarily the breaths and the clicks and the mouth noises uh, which I'm obsessive over anyway and I always trim out. So at that point it was just a matter of managing the, the relative level of the backs and the lead vocal and definitely at points, I wanted the backs to kind of swallow up the lead vocal a little bit because the lead vocal was doubled by a few other voices and doubled down the octave. 
and I felt like after chorus one, you kind of knew the words and I could buy the final chorus, just let everything swallow up that lead vocal, sound like a giant wall of sound. And um, to me, that was the best way to get the energy across. You know, you work on a lot of different mixes. It sounds like some on occasion for yourself, uh, but most of the time for other people. So when do you know that a mix is done? That's a great question because honestly we could go forever. But usually I know a mix is done when nothing sounds like, and I don't know when I started saying this, but nothing sounds underbaked. Nothing is like, nothing is sticking out. Um, like it's, it's not drawing attention to itself as being recorded. I think this is really hard to describe actually. Uh, what I mean to say is that nothing draws attention to the medium itself. Like I don't hear wind noise from the microphone. I don't hear a track that's excessively dry, like you could only achieve in outer space or in a completely like dead room. Everything needs to have a little bit of realism around it and everything needs to have its own identity. Because realistically when we when we start on an acapella track, a lot of the time everything is bone dry and everything is really dynamic and the levels are kind of all over the place. So what I'm listening for is I just don't want, I don't want things to draw attention to them. Like I don't want the microphone sound to draw attention to itself. So I'll like, I'll take out that bump at 300 Hertz that a lot of like K67 capsules have. And I'm just trying to make it sound transparent and then try to make it sound interesting. Um, and if I can't tell, like, if I can't tell that a limiter is working or that a compressor is working, like, cause often I don't want to hear that stuff. And I think I might be a little bit weird for it, but the second I hear some limiter distortion, I get taken out of it. And maybe that's just my like inner mastering engineer speaking, but anytime I'm drawn attention to, to the medium, I think, well, that's not done yet. We need to we need to iron out those technical flaws in order for this to be presentable. But then there's also the question of of like, is it actually exciting? And it needs to be exciting too. So if it just sounds like really dynamically flat, flat I'm like, okay, I need to go in. We need to ride some of those background parts. We need to let things poke out, things to like pop their head in and uh, just keep the listener interested. Nice. And do you, do you ever have to just tell the mixing engineer when you're mastering that it needs a bit of a rework? I try not to do that because a lot of the time I know that projects are on a time frame and realistically, like everyone is at a different part of their learning process, right? Like we all, we don't learn everything we need to know just on one project. And we don't, we don't ever do a project that is absolutely perfect in every single way. And that way we're constantly learning. So what I like to do is like, yeah, I like to offer some feedback and I like to offer a little bit of direction so that that particular mix can be improved. But I'm not going to suggest things that's like do the entire thing over again, because realistically, like we need to, we need to like be supportive of each other. We need to be supportive of ourselves and recognize that like what we did is still awesome for what it is. And it can be better with some small tweaks and that the next project, you know, you might learn something even bigger that changes your workflow. But, you know, there's no sense in in mixing the same song four times unless you really have the time for it and you really want to. But I think it's more important just to like just to just 
do things over and over again um, on different songs, you know, keep learning, keep the material fresh and have fun with it. Yeah, well said. And, you know, as you're taking in mixes and getting them ready for mastering, in your opinion, what makes a great mix? And uh, on the other end, what makes a not so strong mix? I think a great mix takes what the original artist intended to the next level. You know, I, I think that that using everything that was provided in a way that makes the material sound good is my favorite type of mix. Making it sound like if it's an acapella group, it's the best ever version of that acapella group, just like a superhuman group of people that can do amazing things, but it still sounds like in a lot of ways what it is. Of course, there are exceptions when when you can go over the top and make it sound like super crazy that I really appreciate, too. But a lot of the time, it's like taking what was intended to the next level, as I said before. The counterpoint to that, what makes a bad mix is a mix that ignores what the artist was going for. I think when when like um, the original artist like pocket or something like that if that's been steamrolled in editing and everything's been completely locked to the grid in a way that's not flattering um that's a little bit of a detriment to the overall sound and that that'll come through in mixing another thing that might happen is like what if a group's strong suit is its dynamics and they really went crazy with the dynamics but there's so much compression on the mix that it doesn't come across well yeah, I understand that we do have to limit dynamics, but more times than not, we have to figure out how do we translate the dynamic changes that that the group intended to a recorded medium? Because a lot of the time, it can't be just volume. Like We do have to reduce the dynamic range so that people listening on the train can hear the quiet parts, but we have to figure out how texturally we can make that come across in the final mix. And a lot of the time that's just like, um, a lot of the time that's, that happens because people's tone can change as they crescendo or decrescendo, but also doing a good job of adding other textural elements to make sure that things sound bigger at the big parts and smaller at the small parts, um, can really, can really make or break a mix. Can you speak more to that, uh, in terms of making a mix sound dynamic because that's something that I'm, that I'm personally struggling with uh you know i i've i've mixed a group that really focuses on dynamics and uh i think what when i'm i'm struggling with trying to make sure that you know everything is uh compressed enough but also stay dynamic what what are some tips and tricks for um for doing that i'd love to talk about that and i think that there are a couple ways to do it one way that I really like to do it is to to target the frequencies in the human voice that take up a lot of space and ultimately eat up your headroom, meaning like, you know, get to that point where you can't get any louder without reaching the digital limit before other parts. Um, and that often is the mid-range, anything between like 300 hertz to 
1200 or 1500 is where the human voice often has a lot of energy, especially when they get really loud. The reason for that is because that's where like the second, third and fourth harmonic of the human voice is at some of those higher, louder notes. And um, a lot of the time what you'll find is as a person starts singing higher and louder, the second, third and fourth harmonics start to get louder at a, at a rate that is not proportional to how much louder the root is getting. And so what I like to do with that is find the band where those harmonics are sitting and just compress that one band so that you still allow the root of the note to get louder and the really high harmonics, like those treble frequencies that communicate like the strain in a singer's voice and the intensity in what they're singing and the articulation of their consonants, allowing those things to still get louder while those big space-eating mid-range parts don't get as much louder if that's proper grammar <laughs> as the rest of it. So you get the feel of the dynamics without necessarily using as much headroom. And that's a tool that I use at any part of the process, specifically mixing and mastering. And it can happen there um, without really making too many compromises. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I said that there are multiple ways to do it, so I should probably talk about a second way. <laughs> the, the other way is to add more textures. So um, when you can't get dynamically too much, too much louder, you can achieve the same result or a similar result just by adding more textural things. Like maybe that means more vocal layers where you have, you know, more high frequencies that, that make it sound more intense. Um, and maybe it means adding more percussion layers like shakers, extra hi-hats, um, a bigger snare drum that is brighter um, and has more reverb on it. Um, you can kind of create these effects, um, but it's important to have the more intense stuff and different stuff in the louder parts than is in the smaller parts. Because honestly, if you just ride the volume over time, it probably will get eaten up by compression and might not sound as effective. That is a great detailed explanation. So is there a mix out there that you come back to all the time and say, wow, this mix still blows me away from, you know, the first time I heard it to even when I listen to it now? Gosh, you know what? I have a really funny relationship with, with loving mixes because a lot of the time over the years, I really thought I loved mixes and the thing that I loved about them was not the mix. It was usually the arrangement or realistically what I loved about the mix was that it didn't draw attention to itself, right? It was, it was like there was no filter between the art itself and me. Um, so in that way, it's really hard for me to think of anything specific um, that I really loved. But I can think of a few acapella mixes that are that are really special, like um, Closet Freak by the Tufts Beelzebubs. That was done by Bill Hare. Uh, and that mix is awesome. There's so much cool sub sub frequency content that it just sounds so unique. I think it's really special. And like shout out to most of the stuffs that the that the Beelzebubs have done because it's all really unique, especially the album Play the Game. That was a really early 
um, influence of mine, like when I was getting started in acapella production specifically. Um, but yeah, Closet Freak, that's a cool one. That's a really, really fun one for like testing subs and stuff. Nice. Thanks. I guess we're going to dive into some of the more uh, nerdy tech questions. So in regards to mixing, is there a piece of gear, software plugin that you use and own and that makes a big difference in your sound? Yeah, I think that um, I try to keep keep it as simple as possible. Um, and I use a lot of tools that are really uncomplicated because if I reach for something, I want it to be quick and easy. So like my favorite vocal compressor, for for instance, is Renaissance Vocals by Waves, Arvox. And um, I use that on pretty much everything. It's just like, I think it's just two sliders. It's great. And um, I use Waves L1 a whole lot when I need to level something. Sometimes it's the first thing in my lead vocal chain. Um, what else do I use? I use um, Tokyo Dawn Records Nova. The Gentleman's Edition is the one that you have to pay for, but you can get Nova for free. That's a um, that's a dynamic EQ, and I believe it uses RMS level detection, so it sounds really smooth. Um, those those tools are, I think, some of the ones I use the most. Obviously, I also use FabFilter Pro Q3, um, which is just like for ease of use and speed, amazing. Um, you can get the same sound out of just about, just about any EQ as far as I can tell, but Pro Q3 just makes it quick. And I, I love that. I, I really like the ease of use so that I can just get there quickly for the creative stuff. Um, I'm kind of all over the place. I usually end up doing a lot of creative stuff manually, just using simple tools like reversing and reverbs and a lot of the time even just recording extra stuff. Uh, so I don't do a lot of like preset surfing through through plugins, but occasionally I'll use like, I'll use FabFilter Saturn in a weird way or um, like I've tried to find a use for Waves Enigma, but uh, because people say that, that it can create some funny things, but usually I don't like it. I, I really don't like when the when the effect like draws attention to itself instead of um, instead of accenting the music. Oh, I guess one that that is cool is uh, Brower Motion because you can create some neat circular like panning and front to back panning effects. I, I do like that plugin. Oh yeah, I saw you pull that one up uh, while you're live streaming. That was a pretty neat plugin. I think it was selling for thirty bucks. Still might still be <laughs> just a, just about everything on the Waves website like it's gonna go on sale for 30 bucks at some point so usually it's a good idea to wait when it comes to a wave plugin if it's more than 30. So Eric tell us about um, your recording process and you know what you think you do well during the recording process what's important to you and generally things that a beginner should be focused on when trying to you know do a, a good first or second or third project. Okay, I think that the most important thing when you're going into a recording process or a recording project, excuse me, is to try and make it so whoever is behind the microphone singing into it isn't drawn to the technology. Um, if you're able to work quickly and not talk too much about 
you know, what you're doing technically, then you can let that person focus on the music. And I think that's what makes a great recording engineer, someone who can be really fast, work at the pace of the singer, um, and also understand, you know, when they need breaks and stuff like that. But don't draw attention to the technology and and um, have a system that's stable. Make sure it just works every time and, and go as quickly as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know you've done your fair share of editing. So what advice do you have for uh, people who want to edit uh, a project ready for mixing? I would say in some in a similar way to how I said uh, something before, like try not to do any harm to it. It's easy to go really heavy with editing. And sometimes it's important to go really heavy with editing. Like you might tune a bass track a little bit heavier than you might tune another background track. But at the same time, I think it's really important to take your time. Know that you'll probably get more efficient and faster at editing over the course of your learning process. Like when you do more and more projects, you'll automatically get faster. But don't try cutting corners in the beginning. Uh, try and do it as well as you can before you do it as fast as you can. Slow and steady wins the race. What about drum production? Uh, what you know, sometimes that can be a daunting experience for people to create their own samples or sequence drums or know how many drum tracks to make for one percussion. Yeah, what advice do you have for for those folks? Yeah, honestly, I think it's it's funny that we treat editing as like a like a more entry level position than we treat mixing because if you're creating drum samples, you better be good at mixing. Um, unless you are able to really cherry pick ones that are just perfect the way they come, which happens every once in a while. But I think that if you're not sure how to process things and, and you're having a hard time getting a good drum sample, chances are if you're having a really hard time getting the sound you want from a drum sample you're trying to make, the material that you started with might not have been there in the first place. So a lot of the time it makes sense to just record as much as possible and try and cherry pick sounds that are almost there before you start processing them. Because it's really rare for you to start with something that sounds like total butt and then work on it for so long that it sounds amazing. Um, those qualities that you are looking for kind of need to be there before you start working on it. Um, and so like if you're editing and you're going to send it to a mixing engineer who's more experienced than you, don't don't go crazy about the samples you put in. Like, of course, do your best, but don't spend so much time and agonize and lose sleep over it because if they're not what the mixer is looking for, chances are the mixer will find a way to pull something else and make a sample out of it or to add a, or just add a sample from their collection that works a little bit better. Awesome. So after all your editing and your drum production is done, uh, what advice as you move on to mixing what you have for those getting started? Well, my best advice that I can possibly give, because mixing is so different from person to person, is just to take the time to know what you want before you start mixing. So have a vision in your head of what you want the song to sound like before you go changing things. Um, because if you don't know where, what you're aiming for, you could just go around in circles for hours and hours and hours and end up in a place that doesn't even sound as good as the edit sounded. Um, but if you have a clear sense of purpose, 
you know how you want to change the tone of a certain element or you know that, you know, oh, this part would be really, really cool if it's like in the background and heavily washed out in reverb. You start to paint this mental picture. What's in the background? What's in the midground? What's in the foreground? What's up high and super shiny and trebly? What's down low and super like underwater sounding? Then you have a clear path that you can follow and you can create these aesthetics. Like once you know what you want to do to the sound, it's easy to get help or experiment and figure out how to do it. So um, it's just the exercise. What's the what's the picture that I want to paint first? And then, okay, you've got a roadmap. You know what to do. Yeah, that's great. Um, so yeah, I, I guess before we wrap things up, uh, do you have any questions for us? Well, goodness, um, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff I would love to ask is is related to like how's the podcast going have have you done a few interviews so far i'm really eager to hear uh all the other stuff that you've been working on yeah so we've we've already started interviewing some people we've interviewed ted trembinsky um uh dio and uh not too long ago we interviewed colin egan and we have a couple people more people queued up like uh angelo ugolini um, mel danicky uh, Mike Jankowski. So uh, yeah, it's 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 been going, and we've we've started making some edits as well. So, and you know we're we're getting pretty excited. We're also working on branding now, uh, with the logo, uh, social media, things like that. That's awesome. And are there are there any musical projects that you have in the pipeline that you're excited about? Uh, for me, I have two virtual acapella music videos that I'm going to work. So I, I work on so I'm mixing and uh, video editing, and I'm also uh, mixing a track for my uh, my good friends in DC, uh, Atlas, and uh, they have two tracks coming out. So that's pretty much it on my awesome. End. Yeah. What about you, Kyle? So cool. What about you, Kyle? So uh, I'm coming down the home stretch on a uh, three track EP with a group at Penn State, Shades of Blue. Um, I recorded that back in December before uh, all the the quarantine hit, and then. Uh, I just got this week my hands on a virtual choir project. Um, you know, it's not really a virtual choir project. It's a group of pen that wants to do um, some live style videos with, the, with, the, with their little heads and boxes. And uh, I'm starting to experiment with all this noise reduction software because we got to kind of restore these tracks as best we can. Right. That is just that's that's a hard battle to fight. I hear you there. I do have one other question. What is the first thing that each of you are going to do? when we are out of the pandemic zone and we are free from quarantine? I I have no idea. I haven't even thought about it. I, <laughs> I'm probably just going to go to the park and just in, enjoy the trees and the grass because it, it's just weird not seeing it, especially with me living in, uh, you know, center city of Philly, where it's just, uh, you know, mostly houses and random buildings. So um yeah i'm gonna go to the park <laughs> ricky when you are done at the park uh do me a favor and meet me for happy hour because i'll be at the bar oh, yeah. <laughs> good plan good plan love that yeah. well i was trying to, that's that's definitely what i'm doing i was just trying to keep it pg 13 yeah. so. well we, we've, we've passed that but, we've uh, passed that point already <laughs> we'll keep it we'll keep it pg 21 yeah yeah <laughs> yeah all right, Eric, so how can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you or get their tracks mixed, mastered, recorded? Well, you can find my website at ericsholzproductions.com. Uh, you can even type in ericsholz.com and it'll bring you to the same place. 
You can find me on Facebook, Eric Scholes Productions, Instagram, EA Scholes. Um, yeah, all all those places, the, the contact form on my website will go straight to my email that I use for everything. So uh, feel free, hit me up, um, even if you just want to chat. Love to talk. All right. And Eric, uh, we know you've worked with a lot of engineers, um, but who are some of the most uh, important individuals that have inspired you along the way? I think... There are a lot of people who I looked up, look up to, um, like Bill Hare, Ed Boyer, James Gammon, um, James Cannon made a lot of amazing things back in the day as well. Um, and then I really like having the community that we have where we're all just kind of working together, doing a little bit of show and tell with, with the stuff that we work on. And I think that it really inspires us to get better. So one person I talked to a lot um, and compare work to a lot is Alex Green. And we're constantly going back and forth because I think, honestly, we each feel like the other person is better than than us at, at one particular thing. And it's like, oh, why didn't I think to do that? So it's almost it's almost really fun to to be like racing back and forth with with him and a few other people. Um, and honestly, Angela Uglini as well. She she has done some amazing mixes lately. Um, it's really inspiring and it and it makes me think like, all right, we can't we can't stop learning now. We gotta keep getting better. We gotta keep playing around, keep experimenting and getting better. And any final remarks for the beginners out there, Eric? Yeah. Don't don't get discouraged because not every project's gonna be perfect. And it may seem like you're taking a really long time to learn, but if it makes you feel any better, it was that way for all of us. I've been doing this for fifteen years and I still feel like a student. So if you're into lifelong learning, this is the place for you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate, you know, all your knowledge, um, uh, everything that you're, you're willing to share with us. Um, you know, we hope to have you back on the show sometime uh, in the future um, and, and hope that, you know, you're, you're getting through this quarantine in one piece. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's going to wrap it up for today's episodes with Eric Scholes. Keep an eye out for more content coming from the Headroom Podcast with myself and Ricky uh, on interviews with other engineers and the Headroom Bits. See ya. Thanks again for listening to the Headroom Podcast with your hosts, Kyle and Ricky. Oh,